Turn in your Bibles this morning to Revelation chapter 20 as we continue our way, making our way through the book of Revelation. We're coming to a, a controversial and a very kind of high point of the book of Revelation as we've now crossed past or beyond the time of the Great Tribulation. And now we're seeing these things taking place, rapid fire in the heavenly realm. And this morning we're going to focus on the first 10 verses of chapter 20. And if you have headings or subtitles in your Bible, it probably says something like this, Satan is bound for a thousand years. That's where we're going to be today. Um, then the saints reign with Christ for those thousand years, so the millennial reign of Christ. Um, then the satanic rebellion is crushed when Satan is released from um, his, his pit at the end of those thousand years. Then the next section beginning in chapter 11, which we'll cover next week, excuse me, verse 11, the great white throne judgment. And as you look ahead a bit, just with, again with your titles, uh, all things are made new in chapter 21. Of the New Jerusalem, the glory of the New Jerusalem, the river of life, chapter 22, the time is near, Jesus' final word to the church, a warning from the Lord, and then I am coming quickly is how he ends the book. So great things that we're headed for here in the book of Revelation. So chapter 20, let's read verses 1 through 10 together. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection." Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now, when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and, uh, and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. And the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Lord, add... Your blessing, we pray, to the reading of your word. And Lord, bring your understanding, your illumination to this passage as we read it together, as we study it together, and as we look to you, Lord, to be our teacher, to be our guide. And Lord, we honor you this morning by giving you our attention as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. 
right at the outset, I'd like to commend to your uh, understanding, uh, go back and read Matthew chapters 24 and 25, because there is way more here as background than we can cover possibly uh, during this time today. And Matthew 24 and 25, if you've ever read that, is your, maybe in your devotional reading, as you're reading through it, sometimes we get a little tangled up in there and we're trying to make sense of it and wonder what does it all mean. But Matthew 24 and 25 make a lot of sense in the context of Re- Revelation 19, 20, and 21. So let me just commend that to you at the outset this morning uh, to go back uh, later and read Matthew 24 and 25 alongside Revelation 19, 20, and 21. So now we have come to this place in the scriptures where Satan is bound and thrown into the abyss. As we read in chapter 20, verse 1, John says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. Now notice he says the key to the bottomless pit. The bottomless pit uh, spoken of here in Revelation 20, verse 1, uh, is not the same as hell. So let me give you a little uh, understanding of the different places that the scriptures speak of. In the Old Testament, you read of Sheol, and in the New Testament, you read of Hades. And Hades is the New Testament, uh, the Greek version, so to speak, of Sheol. They are the same place. And it's the place of the grave or the place of the dead. And prior to Christ's uh, crucifixion, this is the place that uh, the Old Testament saints would go uh, waiting for the Messiah to come and to rescue them. And you may recall there's an incredible passage in Ephesians chapter 4, I believe it is, where Jesus goes down after he's put in the grave and he goes down to rescue the dead. And it says to lead captivity captive. And we believe that's the time that Jesus goes to to lead the captives who have been waiting for him, who have believed forward in faith for the coming of the Messiah. That is Sheol and Hades. And Jesus went down and rescued them and led them to be with him in heaven. Then we have this place that's mentioned here called the Abyss or the Abuso. And this is the place that is reserved only for Satan and uh, his demons. It's a special holding cell. You might think of it as a maximum security prison for evil beings. And then you have what the Bible refers to as Gehenna, which is hell as we understand it. And it's the place of eternal torment and fire. So there are these three places, Sheol and Hades, which is the the one place, then Abyss, the place for Satan and his demons, and then Gehenna or hell, the place of everlasting torment. You remember also that Jesus, when he uh, had gone over to the Gadarenes and he encountered the demoniac, the man who had legion or a thousand or more demons in him, uh, in Luke chapter 8, verse 30, Jesus asked that man, saying, what is your name? And he said, legion, because many demons had entered him. And in Luke 8, 31, and they begged him that he would not command them to go out into the abyss. So even the demons knew of their destiny that one day they would be put in this place called the abyss. And here we're told that John saw in this vision an angel coming down out of heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. So it's amazing, is it not, to think that the devil is going to be bound by this chain 
And whatever it is, it is an amazing chain that this chain could be put around Satan and it would subdue him, it would confine him for this period that we're told in just a moment in verse 2 for a thousand years. He would be put in the abyss and chained up for a thousand years. In verse 2 it says, He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. So according to what's being uh, told to us here, the angel is empowered for six specific functions. To lay hold of the dragon, that is Satan, to bind him for a thousand years, to throw him into the bottomless pit or the abyss, to shut him up, that is to use the key that will lock up the pit, to seal the pit and to render Satan inactive in his work, and then later to release him after the thousand years, which we'll find out in just a few moments. Now, there are some who hold to different positions about these things, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time going over those, but there are some who believe, if you have been with us back at the beginning of our study, we looked at the four major positions people take when they try to interpret the book of Revelation. And one of those positions is called the preterist point of view, where they look at things as figurative, and they would say in their view that we are currently living in the thousand-year reign of Christ. Now, does anybody think today that the devil is bound up and that his influence has been rendered ineffective? Then that view should be thrown out the window just based on this point alone. Uh, one man, Dr. James Gray, suggested that if Satan is bound today, it must be with a terribly long chain. <laughs> For his reach is still very active, is it not? In Ephesians 6, Paul the Apostle wrote these words concerning Satan. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. If Satan were chained up, why would we need to put on the armor of God and stand against the wiles of of the devil, he goes on to say that we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Remember, Satan is called the God of this world in 2 Corinthians 4. He is, we are told again in 2 Corinthians 4, that he blinds the minds of the unbelieving. We are told in Ephesians 2 that he is the prince of the power of the air. We are told in 2 Corinthians 11 that he can disguise himself as an angel of light. And we are told in 1 Peter 5, 8 that he prowls about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. This is what Satan is doing today. And I don't know about you, but I have felt the effects of that personally. And I think every believer in Christ does. In fact, the reason we pray for those who we know who are lost, who do not yet know Christ, is because the blinds of their mind, the eyes of their minds have been blinded by the power of Satan. And so we are told in Revelation chapter 20, verse 3, that this angel is given the authority to cast Satan into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal upon him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Now, why is it that God does this? Well, there are probably a few reasons, but one of the reasons is 
I think God wants us to finally experience what Adam and Eve experienced for a very brief time back in the Garden of Eden, a time when there was no evil, a time when there was no influence of Satan. And he, Satan, of course, has been given this tremendous leeway and reign and freedom by God for all of these millennia on the face of the earth. We think of Job and we think of how God was, uh, gave permission to Job to go in and uh, to rather to Satan to go in and to test Job and to take him to the limit. And you wonder what has been the purpose of Satan for all of these years and certainly a part of the purpose of Satan at a very high level and we, that's why we sang the song this morning that God is sovereign is that even Satan serves the purposes of God. And so often Satan is allowed to test us, to test the saints, to test those of us who say we love Jesus and to purify our love for him. Think of Job. Remember Satan went before God there in the first two chapters of Job and he requested permission to test Satan to, rather to test Job and of course God said have you considered my servant Job and Satan said to God he said the only reason he loves you God is because you have a hedge of protection about him because you've blessed him and and who God if they were being blessed by you wouldn't be comfortable and yet Satan was given access to Job remember that that scary thought as we think about ourselves sort of being in the place of Job that that Satan could go before God and request access to test and to tempt us and to find out if we truly love God out of a pure heart or if we only love God because of the good things he does for us. I don't know about you, but Satan has been used of God often in my life to test my faith, to test my loyalty to Christ. You know, and the Psalms, I mean, I, so many times I have read in the Psalms where it says the Lord sort of turns his back and it's sort of like a parent on a child, leaving them alone for a few minutes. And if you're a parent in here, you know what that's like, right? You know when it gets quiet? When the kids are in the other room and it's quiet and it's like, now wait a minute. And you go in there and you, I, I, we should show you the pictures someday of our kids, and like, we have all these times where our kids got quiet and we, we panicked and went in there and then one day we found that Alex had painted Rachel with food dye, food coloring, completely painted her. Uh, one day he went in and uh, I can't remember if it was uh, Rachel or Rebecca, but he took the diapers and he taped them all one by one to the wall in a row, the whole pack. This is what happens when the kids get alone, right? When we turn our backs on them for a, a minute, for a minute, they get into stuff, right? Now think about the Lord with us, his children. And he allows Satan, and this is scary, but this is the sovereignty of God. He allows Satan access to test us, to tempt us, and God uses him as a buffering agent. And even Paul said this, that that Satan, you know, uh, he, he buffets his flesh so that he might be more loyal to God. And we look at these things sometimes and we say, God, why? Why would you allow these things to happen? And we look at the broad scheme of evil from our narrow human perspective. And we try to place ourselves in the, the role of God and say, God, why would a good God allow bad things to happen to good people? Right? We ask these questions when... The thing of it is that question is ignorant from our point of view because we don't know what it's like to be God, do we? 
and we don't know what it's like for God to allow Satan, his mortal arch enemy, to have access to his children so that they might be tested and tried and proven so that our faith might be loyal to him. You know, we sing the song, and I love it. We all love it. I love you, Lord, and I lift my voice to worship you. Oh, my soul, rejoice. And we sing that song sometimes in worship, and it's like, oh, Lord, it's so amazing to worship you. And then we walk out that door, and things happen in our lives. Why is Satan given access to us? Because God uses him. And Satan does not have full free reign. God does restrain him. I mean, Satan does have to get permission for uh, the things that he does to us and, and in our lives. But nonetheless, Satan is now, according to this verse in Revelation 20, verse 3, he's being cast into this bottomless pit. And for a thousand years, for the first time since the Garden of Eden, the world will be free of the influence of Satan. He will no longer have access to us. This period before Satan is bound, which is the great tribulation, and the period at the close of the millennium, when Satan is again loosed, stand in sharp contrast to the tranquility of the thousand years in between. The fact is that the only period in all of human history in which Satan will not execute his work of deception will be the thousand years in which Christ will reign. Now there's more to the story which we'll get to in the next couple of weeks. And then it says here at the end of verse 3, but after these things he must be released for a little while. And so again we have that perplexing question from the human perspective. God, if you're going to take Satan and bind him and cast him into this pit, this holding cell for a thousand years, why are you then going to release him for a short period of time? If you'll hang on to that question, we'll get to that in just a few verses. In verse 4, John again says he sees something. He says, and I saw thrones, and they sat on them, who was they, and judgment was committed to them. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands, and they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years." So there are two groups of people here that John sees in heaven. Who is the first group and who is the second group? The second group should be pretty obvious to us. This is the, <coughs> the tribulation saints. It's the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus. He describes that pretty clearly. But the question becomes, who is this first group? I saw thrones and they sat on them and judgment was committed to them. Well, we believe it's the church, and let's talk about why we believe it is the church. In Revelation chapter 3, verse 21, we find these words. Jesus wrote to the church of Laodicea, To him who overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne, and I, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. Him who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Then in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul wrote these words, Do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world will be judged by you, are you unworthy to judge the smallest matters? Do you not know that you, that is the church, that we, uh, do you not know that we shall judge angels? How much more things that pertain to this life? 
And then we find in the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 7, uh, going back to verse 9, I'll just read a few uh, selections to you. Daniel uh, writes this vision, and he says, I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated and the books were opened. And I watched then because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn, that is the devil, was speaking. And I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and and given to the burning flame. Then I was watching in night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him, that is to Jesus, was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. We believe this is referring to the thousand-year reign of Christ, that all people, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. And then in Daniel 7.22, just continuing here, until the Ancient of Days came, and a judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Continuing a little further in Daniel 7, then the kingdom Uh, And dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. And then finally, Jesus wrote in Matthew 19. So Jesus said to them, Assuredly, I say to you that in the regeneration, when the Son of Man sits on the throne of his glory, you who have followed me, the apostles, will also sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. All of that to say that we believe that these people, uh, the first group of people that he refers to here, I saw the thrones and they sat on them and the judgment was committed to them, is the church represented by the 24 elders, which we've also talked about previously. So we believe the church represented by the 24 elders Uh, sat on judgment, and they were given the power to make judgment. And then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. In Revelation 6, It says, when he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the testimony which they held. And so there we got a preview of the tribulation saints, uh, the ones who had died being protected underneath the altar of God. And then they, they cried out in Revelation 6, How long, O Lord, holy and true, until you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Now here in Revelation 20, they're being given the opportunity by given the the freedom to reign and to rule. Then in Revelation 7, we find John there uh, speaking to one of the elders, and he says, I said to him, sir, you know, so he said to me, you know, saying, who are these people arrayed in white robes? And it says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood 
of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. So God giving them the opportunity to reign and to rule with the Messiah. So what is the purpose of this millennial kingdom? For one thing, it will be the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel and to Christ. And there's a whole plethora of scriptures we could go through this morning, and I'm sorry we can't go through all those. But in in typical fashion, what the Lord is doing here, and we've already begun to see this as we got past the time of the Great Tribulation, uh, when God mentions things like the Battle of Armageddon, it's mentioned in a verse but we aren't given the details. We are just told that it's going to happen and when it's going to happen. But the details behind what the Battle of Armageddon will look like are contained for us elsewhere, mostly in the Old Testament. What about the Millennial Kingdom and the Thousand-Year Reign of Christ? Most of that is contained in the Old Testament. There are so many scriptures that describe that. Uh, But here we are simply told that it's going to happen as a historical fact. So the Millennial Kingdom comes in fulfillment to God's promises to Israel and to Christ. You see, Israel, if we go back and read, and if you want to put another thing on your reading list after Matthew 24 and 25, put Romans chapters 9, 10, and 11 on your list and go back and read that little parenthesis that Paul wrote in the book of Romans about how God is not yet done with Israel. Israel's day is still coming. And during this time of the millennial kingdom, God is fulfilling his promise to Israel. Why? Because in the Old Testament, in multiple places, it says that David's throne shall never be devoid, and the Messiah himself shall come and sit on the throne of David. During the time of the millennial reign of Christ, Christ himself sits on the throne of David. And the nation of Israel is fulfilled. The Messiah reigns over the nation of Israel. And during the millennial kingdom, Jerusalem becomes the headquarters of the world. You know, now we have county seats. We have capitals of states. We have capitals of countries. But during the time of the millennium, there will be one capital. And it will be Jerusalem. And in Jerusalem, there will be one king, one ruler. And his name is Jesus And he will sit on that throne and rule and reign the world from Jerusalem. And he will do this from his temple. He won't do it in a center of government, even though he will be at that moment the political Messiah that the Jews had always looked for. He will be both the political Messiah and the religious Messiah, all fulfilled in one on that great day when he rules and reigns from Jerusalem. It will be the answer to the prayers of the saints when we pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. It will also be God's final demonstration of the sinfulness of sin and the wickedness of the human heart apart from God's grace. Now, there's a verse that we often read as we approach Christmas. There's only a few shopping days left for Christmas, by the way. This is your public service announcement. In Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder. Have you ever wondered what that meant? It's fulfilled here in Revelation chapter 20. The government will be upon his shoulder on that day when he takes his throne in the millennial kingdom. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. 
of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom to order it, it and establish it with judgment and justice, from that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7, fulfilled not in just the birth of Christ, it's partially fulfilled in the birth of Christ, but is ultimately fulfilled in Revelation chapter 20. Amen? The Lord himself will come and take up the throne of David. Luke chapter 1, the promise that the angel gave to Mary. He will be great and he will be called son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, Luke 1.33. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. In Luke chapter 22, beginning in verse 29. And I bestow upon you a kingdom, just as my father bestowed one upon me. That you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Again, who are these people? Jesus is telling us. And then another scripture, and we could do this all day. I've very much limited what I'm sharing with you this morning. In Romans chapter 8, probably a passage we've all read many times. It says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the eternal, excuse me, for the earnest expectation of the creation eagerly waits for the revealing of the sons of God. When are the sons of God going to be revealed? On that great day when the church is given its place to sit on the throne alongside Christ. And previously in Revelation 19 as we look at the church coming back with him in battle last week. For the creation, Romans 8.20, was subjected in futility, excuse me, to futility, not willingly but because of him who subjected it in hope. Because the creation itself will also be delivered from the bondage of corruption. When does that happen? In the millennial kingdom. Into the glorious liberty of the children of God. Why? Because the children of God are now ruling and reigning with Christ. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Until Jesus sets up his kingdom on the earth. I'll commend to you for the sake of time to go back and read Isaiah chapter 11. Uh, this is this amazing passage where it says, The wolf shall also dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, the young ones shall lie down together. The lion shall eat straw like an ox. The nursing child shall play by the cobra's hole, and the winged child shall put his hand in the viper's den. All of these things that he's saying, this is talking about the time of the rule of the Messiah during the millennial kingdom. Do you understand? These things are all pointing forward to the time when Jesus would establish his rule and his reign upon the earth. Revelation 20, verse 5, But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. So there is a first resurrection and there's a second resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of the believers, of the saints. The second resurrection that he's referring to at the end of the thousand years, as we read forward in our scriptures here, uh, beginning down in verse 11, that's the great white throne judgment. That's where all of those who never believed in Christ 
will be resurrected and brought before the throne of God for final judgment. So we will look at that next week. The tribulation martyrs will be raised from the dead and given glorious thrones and rewards. The church will share in this reign as symbolized by the 24 elders. Um, uh, the Bible teaches these, about these two resurrections. The first is of the saved and leads to blessing, and the second is of all the lost and leads to judgment. These two resurrections will be separated by a thousand years. Verse 6, blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So as we've just said, the uh, believers, the church, will reign with Christ along with the tribulation saints. And now we read in verse 7, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Lord, why? Why would you do that? Verse 8, And he will go out and de deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as of the sand of the sea. Now previously, as we've looked at this, and we looked at the battle of Armageddon earlier, and we saw where Jesus went forward, and he struck them with the sword of his mouth, and with the flame of fire from his eyes, and you know, by speaking the very word of God to them, uh, he gives Satan and mankind one more chance, and in this one more chance, after a thousand years of just incredible peace, and as we read that passage in, in uh, Isaiah chapter 11 where, uh, you know, everything is set right. Just as in the Garden of Eden, there's no more poisonous anything. The, you know, animals that fight and, and animals that attack people, all of that goes away. Uh, everything will sit down and rule and reign in peace together. But now as Satan is loosed once again, he goes out to deceive the nations, and that's what Satan does. He's a deceiver, he's a liar, and he is there to cause havoc. He is there to turn people against God and to cause a great rebellion against God because that's what is in his heart, and he wants people to do what he does. As we read here about Gog and Magog in uh, chapter 20, verse 8, uh, most commentators believe that this isn't necessarily related, necessarily related to the Gog and Magog of Ezekiel 38 and 39, if you're familiar with that, which we believe describes in great detail the uh, Battle of Armageddon, where Gog and Magog are prominent, and some feel that Gog and Magog are both uh, a person and a place. At the close of the millennium, Satan will be released from the pit and permitted to lead one last revolt against the Lord. Why? As a final proof that the heart of man is desperately wicked and can be changed only by God's grace. Imagine the tragedy of this revolt. People who have been living in a perfect environment under the perfect government of God's Son will finally admit the truth and rebel against the King. Their obedience will be seen as mere feigned submission and not, not true faith in Christ at all. What a tragedy it will be that after a thousand years of living in the utopian world that God had originally created back in the Garden of Eden, and we as believers being given a taste of what it would look like to live in that environment, then turn around 
And some people, it, it says, during that, that thousand years, we understand that people will be born and generations will come and people will uh, go through this time as new people come on the face of the earth and a marriage happens and all those things and life is propagated that even then in that perfect utopian environment under the reign of Jesus Christ, people will still have the desire to rise up against him and sin. Jeremiah 17, a verse we know fairly well. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his doings. We are told in verse 9 here, they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city, and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. It is amazing that even after everything that's happened up to this point, the battle of Armageddon, Jesus casting Satan into the, the abyss for a thousand years with this chain wrapped around him and this amazing padlock over the abuso so that Satan would be confined down there with uh, the Antichrist and the false prophet. And for a thousand years, evil is chained up. Evil is eradicated. And yet evil, even in the eradication of evil, even with the influence of Satan removed, God proves a very important, salient point to all of mankind. And here's what it is. That my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked. You see, we like to blame everything on Satan, don't we? We like to say, you know what? If Satan wasn't around and his evil angels weren't around and the influence of evil weren't around, I would be a much better person. But God proves through this little event of casting Satan away for a thousand years and then allowing him to come back that it was really just the evil in my heart anyway. That sin, at the root of sin, is pride. And at the root of pride is what we've talked about with Satan when we've gone back and read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28, which both describe the fall of Satan back in eternity past, where he went before the throne of God and said, I will be like the Most High, and he had this plan to exalt himself. Isn't the root of every problem we have in life, think about this with me for just a moment, because I like me, because I want my way isn't the root of every problem for those of you who are married in marriage, a problem of self? I'll raise my hand. You, you have it on tape, right, hon? I'm, I'm admitting it's my flesh that causes problems between us. Isn't every problem in every human relationship the issue of self? It's the issue of the human heart. We can't hide from that. We can try to blame shift just like Eve did where she said, it wasn't my fault, it was the serpent who made me eat. And it wasn't the serpent who made you eat. He just sort of showed the fruit to you. And you just looked at it and went, oh, yeah, that does look good. I never noticed that before. It's our evil hearts. And then there's this final satanic rebellion. They went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city this verse here makes me remember that amazing scene from Elijah where Elijah and his servant are gathered and the army of Syria has gathered around them and his servant goes and peeks out the door and he's like, oh my gosh, we are surrounded. 
they're going to kill us. And it's just the two of us. It's just me and you, Elijah. You know, I hung out with you because I thought you were a good guy, but apparently it wasn't such a good idea to be your friend. And he said, oh, Lord, please open his eyes. And the Lord opened his eyes, and what did he see? He saw that song that we sing, the God of angel armies. He saw the, the armies surrounding them, and in greater were they around him, that fiery band of angels, than those who were there in reality. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And in that moment, they were able to see Elijah and his servant, that God was there surrounding them. And here in Revelation 20, verse 9, they went up on the breadth of the earth and they surrounded the camp of the saints. And everyone there on that day is probably looking at it going, oh my gosh, what is happening here? And the fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. God just comes down with a flame of fire and just licks them up. What an amazing scene. Apparently, Christ permits the army to assemble and encircle his capital city. No sooner has Satan's army been assembled, however, than fire comes down from God out of heaven, and the besiegers are destroyed, like the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Thus is shattered the last vain attempt of Satan to overthrow the throne of God and to usurp God's prerogatives. This also ends the false theory that human beings in a perfect environment will willingly serve the God who created and redeemed them. Even in the ideal situation of the millennium, innumerable people respond to the first temptation to rebel. This is the end of the road for the nations who rebel against God as well as for the career of Satan. In one sense, the millennial kingdom will sum up all that God has said about the heart of man during the various periods of history. It will be a reign of law, and yet law will not change man's sinful heart. Man will still revolt against God. The millennium will be a period of peace and perfect environment at a time when disobedience will be judged swiftly and with justice. And yet, in the end, the subjects of the king will follow Satan and rebel against the Lord. A perfect environment cannot produce a perfect heart. Let that settle for a moment. And as much as I am a supporter of homeschooling, don't be deceived and think that your kids, once you release them as arrows out into the world when they turn 18 that they're going to go out and make all the right decisions, that they're never going to turn against you. A perfect environment cannot produce a perfect heart. And again, as I said, as much as I support that. And then we're told here in Revelation 20, verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So the beast and the false prophet, I said earlier they were in the abyss. They're actually, I forgot, they're already in the lake. But here it's interesting. We get insight into the fact that God created hell, Gehenna, the lake of fire, for the devil and his emissaries. You see, God didn't create hell for man. But it's unfortunate, it's sad, it's tragic that that's where many will end up. And the next section as we get into the great white throne judgment. 
will reveal to us that those who have not believed in Christ, who have had literally every chance, every opportunity, they're going to stand before Christ at that great white throne, and they will be sentenced to a place that was never intended for them for rejecting Christ. And it's their rejection of Christ that sends them to that place. We are told over and over in the scriptures, God is not willing that any should perish. God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is forever merciful. God is forever gracious. God is loving, but God is also justice. And he must be true to his holy nature. So God, if he deals with the devil, and if he deals with the false prophet, and he deals with the Antichrist, and he deals with the evil angels, the one-third of angels who rebelled with Satan against God, if he deals with them, he must deal with those who shake their fist against God and who rebel against him in like manner such as Satan did. God must deal with those things and with those people. So as we consider the millennial reign of Christ, this great historic event, yet future, but I believe it can't be too far off. Because if we believe with all of our hearts that Christ could come at any moment and we have that expectancy and that eminency in our hearts and we're thinking about the day that Christ could come and we're readying ourselves for him. And as we read earlier, that we the bride are making ourselves ready for our bridegroom to come and to receive us unto himself. If we believe in those things, if we believe that the word of God is true and we believe that these things are literal and real and that they will happen, then as Peter said, what kind of people ought we to be? Keeping ourselves chaste and pure and holy and ready for that day when Christ will come. And yes, he calls his church to account, but thankfully God deals with us in a gracious and merciful way. He judges us by the blood of Christ. And because the blood of Christ, which cleanses us from all sin, has already been judged by God, he says to us, uh, welcome and enter into the joy of your master. And we get to enter in by grace. It is by grace through faith that we have been saved, not of ourselves, that it is a gift of God, not of works that any of us should boast. And if we all enter in on the same level playing field of grace, how much more ought we to be looking forward to that day when we get to be with him in his presence? And how much more ought we to be looking forward to taking as many people with us to heaven? Because you know the devil is looking forward to how many people he can take with him to hell. How much more noble our cause, how much more right and just our cause to drag those people along with us to heaven. Even if it's in a a thief on the cross kind of scenario where they are there on their deathbed and in that last minute we're pleading with them, please give your heart to Christ before you breathe your last. Even God honors that. How gracious is he? Amen. So Lord, the Lord wants us to realize that these things are real, that they're true. And the thing I was thinking about this morning and just kind of preparing my heart is sometimes we can read these things. And because we live in a generation where we have been told so many stories and we're all being prepared for the next movies that are coming out and the great next saga and Star Wars and all that stuff that's coming. And we're like, oh, yeah. 
And we can start to have our hearts desensitized to the fact that this is not a fable. This is not fiction. Do you understand that? This is not fiction. This is real. This is true. This is going to happen. And here's the question. Do you believe that this is real? Do you believe that this is true? If we do, then let's believe it and let's alter our lives and our thinking and our priorities and our decision-making to be in accordance with what this tells us the truth really is. Amen? Lord, we love you this morning. And we don't say that flippantly. We love you. We worship you. We honor you, Lord. And we want you to be our Lord, to be our master, to be our savior. God, take these things and just infuse us with hope, with urgency, with devotion, with holiness. And Lord, increase our love and we pray that you would allow the fruit of the spirit to just flow from our lives as you fill us up with your love. Lord, for any of this morning who may not know you or may be unsure of their relationship with you, then we ask that this be the moment, that this be the time where they just bow their hearts and say, Lord Jesus, I come to you. I want to be forgiven. I want to be covered by the blood of Christ. And let this be their moment as they repent and turn and run to you. Lord, for those of us who know you, but maybe we've been compromising with sin, with the world, let this be a moment where we return to you. Lord, we love you, we bless you, we honor you. Lord, be our God, and we will be your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Shall we stand and worship him?